very warm welcome to you all. My name's Chris. And Hogan. I'm Rich Johnson. Oh, I knew I'd get it wrong. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's marvellous. What larks. Marvellous, isn't it? Marvellous. Charles <laughs> <laughs> Brucey's back. <laughs> oh, God. Ah, uh, welcome everybody. It's episode four of the Football Attic Rewind, sponsored by Anton Berg Marzipan. <laughs> Once again, we're here to assess an old episode of Match of the Day, the big match, or some variant therein, and analyse everything we see or hear that's of any interest to anyone. Today's episode sees us heading back 42 years to review an episode of the big match that was originally broadcast on Sunday the 16th of December 1979, almost Four years to the day since the last big match that we watched on the Football Attic Rewind. We'll be looking at that very shortly, but first of all, let's check in Check in even with me old mate, Rich Johnson. Rich, how have you been since we last spoke? Let's, let's check in, check check in, in. with me. me. Uh, um, I don't I'm think right. anybody noticed. No, definitely not, especially now I've no. raised awareness of it. You know? <laughs> Thanks um, for that. Yeah, I'm all right, mate. Cluck, cluck. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, nothing much to report, really. I think, so, had we finished the Euros last time we spoke? I don't think we had, had we? So so the no, Euros happened, um, and yes. uh, let's quickly move on from that, uh, because <laughs> we don't want to talk about that anymore. Draw a veil over that. Yes, it happened, and now it hasn't happened anymore, or something. Um, yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, you? Not too bad, thank you very much. Yes, um... Since we last spoke, I had a uh, I had a nice short break in Wellington uh, to celebrate my daughter's birthday and my own upcoming birthday. Did that. Um, been watching the Olympics. That's all been and gone and finished. That was good. But um, no, apart from that, not much really. Just sort of, you know, breathing in and out and stuff like that. You know how it is. Living. Living and existing. existing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. As, so, that's yes. as upbeat as it gets, I'm afraid, folks. We are. Oh, yes. Existing and nothing more <laughs> for, for your pleasure. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> <laughs> that for the patrons. <laughs> yeah, that's a special service we provide. Um, well, it's it's very nearly time to affix our madness badges to our lapels and tie the laces on our Dr. Martin boots. But before we get into today's episode of the big match, let's get into the football attic time cupboard and head back to December 1979. Rich, uh, you'd have been quite young at this point. What, if anything, do you remember from December 79? Not much. I was four. <laughs> four. Um, yeah, so I was four. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I would have started school by now, and I remember I'd broken my wrist. I think I've talked about this before. I broke my wrist in the summer, um, but I, I'm sure, sure, pretty sure the cast would have been off by December. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Something I really don't remember much about '79 at all. I'm trying to think even what what toys I might have got. I think most of the toys that I can think of from Christmas, like Matchbox things like that, I think they're probably from the '80s onwards. I don't really remember mm-hmm. a lot. So, Saws, I don't remember. What were you up to, Chris, in your early 20s? <laughs> <laughs> Steady now. Um, I was eight years old at this point. Uh, I, I'd have been in the second year at Thamesview Junior School at the time. Um, I think life was just fairly simple and easy, really. Um, I, I have a vague recollection of running around in the school playground with my mates, Alan and Jason, pretending to be Starsky and Hutch, which, when there's three of you, isn't particularly straightforward, as you'll appreciate. Um, but uh, Starsky and Hutch was the big TV show at the time, I seem to remember. Um, apart from that, I think I was just starting to play football at the weekends with a couple of 
kids. They were brothers who lived down my street. I've mentioned this on an old football attic podcast. Dean and Michael Potter, their names were, and uh, and they sort of taught me some basic goalkeeping skills. So um, I was learning how to, you know, dive safely and catch the ball and blah blah blah, all that stuff. Happy days. But so that, no, basically, just, what they were doing there was they were ensuring that they didn't have to go in goal, weren't they? That is exactly what you remember well from the last time I did that <laughs> particularly boring anecdote. But yeah, that is exactly what they were doing because they, they used to play football just on their own. But one of them had to go in goal. And when I came along, the schmuck that I was, not realising where I fitted into all this, they thought, ah, we'll teach him how to do goalkeeping stuff. And then we can just carry on having shots at goal. And that's that's what it was. But I actually ended up sort of playing in goal from that point onwards, quite a lot until, you know, in my early 30s when I used to play five-a-side football because it was second nature to me. I'd started so young learning how to be in goal. I mean, I'm not saying I was particularly brilliant at it, but um, other kids hated going in goal. And I, for me, it was just like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. It wasn't, wasn't a problem. There you go. So that's that's good. I'm glad we've, glad we've cleared that up. Yeah. I do have one memory, <laughs> which I think was probably from around about 1979. And my brother reminded me of it the other day because um, he's been watching some um, old telly on Forces TV, which I believe right. is I've heard of this. Kind of armed forces channel. Um, yes. And he was saying, he, he said, um, he said, yeah, I've been watching a program recently. He said, if I say to you, like, the, the pair of us in our underpants pointing guns at each other, standing on the sofa, what would you remember? And I said, I said, was that the man from Uncle? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes, there's wow. a picture. There's a picture in the family photo album of me and my brother in blue underpants. Not the same pair. <laughs> Obviously, we had our own pairs. We weren't that poor. Um, <clears throat> literally with, with um, toy guns. Standing on one arm of an armchair each, pointing at each other. Um, I think we might have had cowboy hats on, though. I don't know if that was... <laughs> Just to complete a, the image. Yes, I don't think that was a man from uncle thing. But, but that's what we were playing at the time. So, yeah, there, there you go. So, <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you sort of took that picture these days, you know, Apple would scan your iPhone for it. <laughs> bit of topical news there. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Uh, there's that's that image is now burned indelibly into my psyche. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. We, right. Quickly, let's move on. <laughs> we may move on. I, I also, I think I, it was probably around that time. My cousin, whose name was David, he had um, one of those uh, evil Knievel toys where he's on his bike like a stunt bike, and you kind of revved the you had oh, to yeah. rev the handle, and then it would suddenly go and off. It would go and crash into something. Um, whether that would have been 79 or it was se- late 70s. They were disappointing, yeah. they were. I remember well, of one of our friends had one. There was a, I mean, on the advert, it was like kind of, it was jumping <laughs> over stuff. It's like, yeah. from what I remember, you'd wind it up and then it would go about three feet and then fall over. Yeah, which was ironically quite accurate for Evil Knievel. <laughs> Who never you, cleared anything. Yeah, especially if you then hit it with a hammer and broke all his legs. <laughs> <laughs> all his legs. I say, like, he's only got two, I think. <laughs> I think he's dead yeah, now. Not the- it, well, yes, he's an ex Knievel, I think. <laughs> I think that's the term I'm looking for. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> as you'd expect, uh, I've bought myself a computer that was popular in December 79 so that I can be constantly fed all manner of facts and information about the era in question. Uh, and which computer did I buy, I hear you ask? Which computer did you buy? Sorry, <laughs> I was waiting there. Well done. Yeah, that was Keeping like Acorn up. Antiques. <laughs> Well, it wasn't wasn't an Acorn computer. Uh, hey, um, hey. Is it the it was. is it the Commodore Geordie one? A Commodore Pet. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, hey, 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 no, 
It was an Atari 800. Uh, oh. It's got 8K, 8K of RAM, uh, four joystick ports, a cartridge slot, but more importantly than all of that, it can play Super Breakout. And that's I was going to say, that's technically more of a games console than a computer, really. Oh, you but. don't know how I've engineered this computer. I mean, you, oh, you okay. should be surprised what I can do. You've kitbashed it. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So uh, so now I've got my information source plugged in. Let's find out what life was like in uh, or on, I should say, December the 16th, 1979. Uh, the day before this episode of The Big Match went out, the Daily Mirror was reporting that a special edition of the TV show Mastermind aimed at raising money for the International Year of the Child, had been cancelled by the BBC. The charity show, in which prizes of £2,000 were to be offered for young people's good causes, was set to feature Jimmy Savile and Rolf Harris amongst its (laughs) contestants. But the bee pulled the plug at the last minute, mystifying producer Bill Wright among many. Could it be, said the Daily Mirror, that the bee were frightened off when they heard that the prize money was being provided by a commercial sponsor, dear old Detol? If anyone listening outside the UK, that's a brand of disinfectant. It the comedy writes itself, doesn't it? Everyone, <laughs> history provides the best scripts. Oh God! <laughs> Celebrity mastermind with Jimmy Savile and Rolf Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it was uh, featured around in the dark with the. Can you tell what it is yet? <laughs> oh, dear. And it's not Do, Jake the Pig. Can you tell who uh, it is yet? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> We'd better move on. Yeah, please. Um, The day after this episode of The Big Match, the British government published the housing bill, which would allow council house tenants to buy their own homes from the following year. Over five million households, including my own, took up the offer. Did your parents partake of a council house and make it their own? No, we weren't in the council house. We it was. I think ours was a private estate that had been that we'd bought. So, yeah, we didn't have that. It was a. I thought you were going to say we were in a mansion. <laughs> didn't <laughs> yeah, concern yeah. ourselves with such things. Yeah, we, we, we couldn't see you lot from where from up on our ivory towers. <laughs> Indeed. We didn't, we didn't concern ourselves with frippery as council house sell-offs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, look. Oh, look, dear. Look. The, uh, <laughs> the proles. The proles have got a house. How weird. <laughs> How strange for them. <laughs> Let's applaud them. Yes. Oh, well done. <laughs> Now deplete the housing stock, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the box, uh, what was on the box on this day? On BBC One, you could have watched Emu's Broadcasting Company. I personally wouldn't. It was an awful programme. I, I, see, I quite liked Emu and I didn't <laughs> like Emu at the time. You know, it was like, it's one of those things where it was a bit annoying, but at the same time, I quite, I remember the, the pink windmill with grot bags yes. and all that lot. Yeah. And that was... That was all right, but I mean, you know, Emu. It was a bit annoying. It was quite funny when he attacked. Um, <laughs> was it Snoop Dogg? He was on the word. What? I think I've said oh, this really? before. Yeah. <laughs> he was on. Uh, yeah, they said. I mean, obviously, the word. You remember the word? It was like you know, yes. kind of early nineties, late night Friday um, trash TV, of, tr- absolute trash TV. But it was brilliant with Terry Christian um, <laughs> and Amanda De Cabinet or whatever her name was. Um, <laughs> it was Cadenet actually, um, and, and, the, and the lovely Katie Puckrick. Hmm. Anyway, um, um, moving on. <laughs> um, <laughs> rubs thighs <laughs> and more um, <laughs> what was I saying uh, the word yeah so so yeah apparently Snoop Dogg was on it and Rod Hull and Emu <laughs> 
And apparently, obviously, Snoop Dogg had never seen Rod Hull and Emu. had no idea what the hell he did or what was going to happen. <laughs> and at one point, the so legend goes, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but the legend goes that at one point, um, Rod Hull went for, uh, well, sorry, Emu, obviously, um, yes. not Rod Hull. He was trying to stop Emu, to be fair. Um, <laughs> Emu went for Snoop Dogg, and apparently <laughs> Rod Hull ended up on the floor with Snoop, Snoop Dogg standing on his neck. <laughs> <laughs> Like I say, whether I just, that's true or not, I don't know, but it sounds funny. I was going to say, I just wouldn't have believed that those two worlds could have ever collided, but I suppose they technically... That was the thing possible. about the word. <laughs> well, indeed. Quite so. Um, also, I mean, that, they had as... Ivy Tilsley, sorry. Oh, Do you remember, that what's, what was her God. name? I can't remember her actual, like, her actual... Lynn Perry. Lynn Perry, oh Christ, yeah. When she'd been sacked from Coronation Street for um, getting lip filler... And suddenly yes. looking like a sort of fish. Um, and then she got pout. sacked from Coronation Street. And she went on the word singing, I think it was I Will Survive. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Drunk, wasn't it? Wasn't she drunk Oh, she was very... Well, she was on something. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if it was alcohol, drugs, or a combination thereof. But yeah, <laughs> that was not the best performance of that song that I've ever seen. And Yeah. And that's why I didn't watch the word very often. I just thought well, I could do without it. I loved the, the word. It was it was great for <laughs> for a pair of shut-ins like me and my brother. <laughs> <laughs> and just going back to the previous thing, I mean, I think it was more sort of Rod Hole that I didn't particularly like. Rather than I had no problem really with Emu. It was just Rod <laughs> Hole's involvement in the whole thing. As you do minor. know that without Rod Hole, Emu would have been a much more subdued character. <laughs> Let, let's not spoil the myth. <laughs> well, the, 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 the rumour is that it was bloody emu that took took him down off the roof when he was trying to fix the aerial <laughs> bloody puppet I, I blame emu yeah sorry praise emu sorry praise emu <laughs> um, also on BBC One of this day was international show jumping and also shoestring I uh, don't think I ever watched shoestring but I, that was a detective series wasn't it that's right Trevor Eve I think yeah. was the uh, yes anyway um on BBC Two on this day, uh, Rugby Special, Ski Sunday and The Money Programme. Fairly standard sort of fare, really, for BBC Two. And on ITV on this day, of course, the big match, but also University Challenge, for it used to be on ITV once upon a time. I never knew that. Yes, yes <coughs> I can remember. I can remember. Sorry, everyone, here goes another tangent. I can remember <laughs> sometimes, either if I was at home from school ill or I'd just come home for lunch or something, because at that time I was at junior school, um, and coming home, and it would be on ITV like about one one o'clock. It was like they threw it on at lunch times as well. It was just one of those. I think it had reached the point where they thought, "What? When can we show this program? It's nobody likes it." And they tried it in the evening. Audiences dwindled. Then they threw it on at lunchtime. Then mid afternoon. In the end, I think they just <coughs> dropped it all together. And obviously, the BBC picked it up many years later. Yes. Um, and at the movies. Uh, if you wanted to go and see a movie around this time, you could have seen Apocalypse Now. And if you'd gone to the cinema the day after this episode of The Big Match, you could have seen Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, that was a film that opened the following day. I do remember that because I remember my brother and my dad going to see it and me oh, being okay. really pissed off that I hadn't been invited. Um, but <laughs> then I was told that I would probably have found it too boring, um, which actually yeah. I think they were right, to be fair. <laughs> I think it was when I was heading, when I came back to the UK about five years ago for a holiday, uh, on the plane, one of the planes heading home, I was, you know, you're flicking around on the, on the 
channels and looking for something to watch, a film to watch. And I stumbled on that. I thought, you know what? I've never really got into the whole Star Trek thing. I'll watch this and see if it's any good. And I think I lasted about 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, that tells you kind of everything you need to know, really. If it was the next generation, fair enough. Because that was good. But oh, the original, okay. boring. Yeah, the next generation was ace. Hmm. Oh, well, there you go. Um, in the shops around this time, a small box of Paxo for your Christmas turkey would have cost you 31.5p, which is about 30% cheaper than it is today, uh, while a can of Heineken Lager would have set you back 25p, uh, which is actually the equivalent of £1.45 now, but you can get a can of Heineken now for a quid. So actually, Heineken was more expensive back then. Stick so with the can, Paxo. <laughs> so you can drink away the fact that you've had to spend a fortune on Paxo. <laughs> Indeed so, because this episode of Big Match Calls the, 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 the week leading up to Christmas, uh, just in case you hadn't already worked that out. Um, all the rage at this time, uh, well, having on the previous podcast mentioned the arrival of uh, digital alarm clocks, you could now get, in Christmas 79, GASP digital alarm clock radios. Yes, Oof. folks, someone had decided that they could probably sort of add on a radio element to the whole digital alarm clock thing, so... There you go. They were in the uh, Christmas 79 edition of the Argos catalogue. Uh, also making their debut around this time were the classic Polaroid 1000 cameras, the legendary Atari 2600 video game consoles, and in the world of toys and games, you could finally get your hands on an electronic Simon game, Speak and Spell, and the first few Star Wars branded toys. I th- think we've mentioned the Star Wars toys before, haven't we, Rich? But you'd have been much further down the line on that than I would have been. Oh, yes. Well, it's interesting oh. to think, though, really, isn't it, that um, considering Star Wars came out in 77, and yes. like, the, you know the first major batch of toys are coming out nearly two years later. Yeah, because didn't they have the, the, was it the empty box campaign they did? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was for Christmas, I think. So that must have been Christmas 78. Because I don't, I oh. believe Star Wars came out in 77, but not everywhere across the country. I'm sure I've read right. that it only came out in London in 77, and the rest of the country it wasn't until like 78 or something. That could yeah. be utter bollocks. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. No, that seems feasible to me. So, yeah. So, Indeed yeah, so. so I think it must have been Christmas 78 then when they had the first swathe of figures, but Palitoy couldn't actually make all the figures, so they sold a, an empty box instead with an <laughs> yeah. IOU literally yeah. in it for each figure. Claim your toys when they come out using yeah. this token sort of thing, yeah. In- insane. And there would have been 28 days for delivery on top of that. <laughs> Indeed. Um, that Atari console, by the way, that I mentioned, it was first sold in the 1979 Autumn Winter Argos catalogue for £155, which in today's money is 899 quid. Yikes. Uh, people always say that they were expensive, and, and that proves it. And my mate, Alan, the aforementioned Alan, who was in the Starsky and Hutch triumvirate that I mentioned in the school playground, he had one of those, and he uh, not, nothing against Alan, but he wasn't from the most sort of salubrious of families. I mean, they weren't exactly sort of like wiping their backsides on 50-pound notes. They were they were about as poor as we were. And like, where did you get an Atari console from? I mean... Back of anyway. a lorry, mate. Back of a lorry. Well, actually, there was a lot of that sort of thing going on at the time. Um, in fact, sometimes my dad was driving the lorry, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was deeply envious of Alan for having a. Did so he used to reverse the lorry into your front room and just fall <laughs> yes. into the living room? Oh, it's Santa's truck again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, in the charts, in the music charts, the number one single in the UK at this time was Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. 
the UK number one album was Greatest Hits Volume 1 by Rod Stewart. I don't know if it's my imagination, but it seems like every time we do these bits, there's always a Greatest Hits album yeah. at the top of the album charts. I well, think it's it was, Christmas, it though, isn't it? Wasn't it? It's Christmas, ah, so it's yes, going to be... In fact, the last one we did was December sort of 75 or whatever. 75, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's always going to be Greatest Hits at Christmas. And later on it would be True. The Human League Greatest Hits or... Yes. Uh, plastic Bertrand, great. <laughs> Wonder where you're that? going. I can't with. remember. Plastic Bertrand, yeah, yeah. Um, um, or yes. altered images, the greatest mm-hmm. hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Particularly small LP that was. Claire Grove. Um, anyway, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, lost it there for a minute. Um, on the front cover of your favourite footy magazines, uh, Shoot Magazine had. Wolves goalkeeper Paul Bradshaw, a Man United striker Lou Macari, and among the headline features inside was one called At Home with Terry Venables. Um, I happen to have the very issue actually here. Here it is. It's, what, it's in my collection of shoot magazines that I have. And um, yes, not that you What's can see that. What's home listeners. like? <laughs> it looks like a, a villa in Benidorm, uh, which uh, <laughs> either that or it actually is a villa in Benidorm, I think. I don't know if you can... Uh, yeah, I can see, yeah. It, yes, yeah. and they're all having a party. I think Terry liked a a, a party. He did. Um, he certainly did, yes. All good. And uh, on the front cover of World Soccer Magazine for December 79 was the China national team, which would have seemed uh, terribly exotic and sort of international at the time because that's, they were a bit ahead of their time, World Soccer, with that. China en- ended up sort of going on to greater things much later. Um. In football news, on this day, Liverpool were top of the first division, level on points with Manchester United. Crystal Palace were fourth. Bolton were at the foot of the first division. In the second division, Newcastle were leading Chelsea by a point. Sheffield United and Colchester were level on points at the top of the third division, and Portsmouth were at the top of the fourth. In the Scottish Premier Division, Celtic were level on points at the top of the table with Morton. I don't remember Morton, Morton being any good in the Scottish League. Oh, yeah. Live and It's the 70s, though, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Bobby Moore was starting his managerial career with non-league Oxford City, but his first match in charge had ended in defeat to Dulwich Hamlet. Uh, elsewhere, the Sunday Mirror were reporting that Arsenal were on the verge of making a bid for Coventry City's Ian Wallace. The Scotland striker had knocked in 50 league goals for the Sky Blues in less than 120 matches, and with Liam Brady looking likely to leave the following summer, which he did, Arsenal were looking for reinforcements. As it turned out, Wallace stayed at Coventry until the end of the 79-80 season before eventually moving to Nottingham Forest. Do you remember Ian Wallace? He was a good player. I do. Um, well, I don't really remember him at the time because I was Just four and nine to football. But, uh, yes. Was he the guy with the frizzy ginger hair? <laughs> exactly, yes. There we go. With the fright wig, yes. Yeah, Duracell. Off. Often, often seen in the uh, tram lines kit. Yes. Uh, wherever you haven't seen pictures of him. Yes. Yes. Um, generally speaking, there was much talk in the newspapers about Crystal Palace, the self-titled team of the 80s. The day before this episode, they faced Liverpool in a match that was seen as being an indicator as to whether Palace really could topple the Reds from their perch. In the end, Liverpool beat Palace, as we'll see, and uh, they won at Anfield before going on to win the league championship while... Crystal Palace finished 13th. The following season, Crystal Palace finished bottom of the first division and were relegated. All right then, nostalgia lovers. That was December 1979. It's time to rewind and watch the big match. And don't forget, if you want to see what this episode was like, 
Uh, you'll find a link to this episode wherever you downloaded uh, Football Attic Rewind, episode four. Uh, so sit back and enjoy. Rich, uh, we uh, we start before we see anything else. We see the London Weekend Television Ident <laughs> from the late seventies, and at last, Rich the Johnson downstroke. gets to see. The, I was just going to say, <laughs> Rich team. Johnson gets to see the version with the vertical bar coming down off the letter Yay. T. I felt very much at home. I have <laughs> a warm sense of uh, comfort when I saw that <laughs> downstroke. <laughs> see, we weren't lying last time, listeners. It did exist. <laughs> Uh, and the big match titles begin and the, the the theme tune and everything. They're still using that piece of music we discussed last time around called La Soiree by David Ordini. Uh, but that would be replaced the following season. And um, we'll, we'll come on to that, I'm sure, at some point. But um, anyway, the titles. Now, first thing to note is that these titles are from the big match Revisited. Uh, but they feature imagery from episodes of the original Big Match series from this era, along with uh, a brief sight of goals being scored in the 79 FA Cup final and Brazil's match against Poland in the 1978 World Cup. What did we make of the titles, such well, as they were? <clears throat> I mean, that's the thing. I, I noted the fact they had quite a bit of uh, um, shots from the World Cup in it, despite mm. the fact the World Cup was 18 months <laughs> yes. prior to that. You know, it's like... I mean, I remember sort of... Um, Saint and Greavesy in the big match using the Aztec gold theme for probably mm. the season after the World Cup. Yes. But I don't think they were using footage from the World Cup and, you know, oh, God, no. certainly not 18 months later anyway. They might have been in the, you know, the opening few games where they didn't have much actual footage from the season to use. But yeah, that was a bit strange. <laughs> it felt a bit random yeah. to see so the 1978 World Cup in the sort of big match in December the year after. Well, the funny thing was, uh, you see a, a clip of a Brazilian player bending a free kick around a wall against, I think it's Poland, and that looks like it's on film stock, like they've grabbed it from the official mm. FIFA film, and you think, what? what? <laughs> That's not TV footage. Uh, it's just me being over-analytical as usual. Um, the revisited name has been used to repackage old big match footage on many occasions down the years, and this series, covering the 79-80 season, was shown on ITV during April 2021. Because of that, there are one or two specifics to inform you about. First of all, there's a brief and somewhat unnecessary bit of narration by ITV Sports' Gabriel Clark during the introduction. Uh, Secondly, during the match action featured in this episode, there's a modern-day caption in the top left-hand corner showing the current score during the match. Again, completely unnecessary. And uh, on the subject of captions, there are one or two others that crop up throughout to let you know who Brian Moore is and so on. So um, we hope it doesn't put you off too much. But as you'll appreciate, not always easy to get the original, original footage. We sometimes will have to dip into these. I mean, bearing in mind we're reviewing the big match revisited, should our (laughs) time capsule not have gone back to April 2021 instead of 1979? (laughs) (laughs) Well, indeed. What was happening... (laughs) <laughs> Mere three months ago. Four, three or four months ago. <laughs> well, back then you could have got a pint of beer for... <laughs> and you still can, it turns out. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, the, those are the uh, the titles and the theme tune and everything. And obviously, eventually we get to see the majestic sight of Brian Moore, uh, who's uh, sat behind a blue desk bearing the name of the programme in a font used regularly on British TV to denote anything scientific or space-related. 
which by 1979 was beginning to look a bit old hat, actually. The wall behind him bears broad two-tone blue diagonal stripes and a panel showing a painted illustration of a football player kicking a ball. As in the 1975 episode we reviewed last time around, Brian Moore's microphone is poked through a hole in his desk, but alas, on this occasion, there's no sign of a pipe. Presumably given up smoking by that point. Um, what did you make of the studio set? Uh, it was colour, full of colour. There was a lot of colour. Because <laughs> I know it's like straight away, it was like, compared to the blue. drab ones we'd seen before, it was like, way! There's blue, <laughs> there's sky blue, there's a bit of green, there's some gold. Um, and then, um, not only that, to top it off, Brian Moore, subdued grey suit, but a wicked tie. Um, <laughs> bit of paisley, bit of stripes going on. Very nice. Oh, yes. It was all colour, ready for the 80s. Indeed, so, yes. Um, I seem to remember, like, throughout the 70s, the Big Match studio would have, usually somewhere, there would be a gimmicky thing, like some louvre slats that would rotate and then display another picture behind it and stuff like that, or chroma key stuff. But but by this point, I think they'd just gone, like, to hell with it. Look, it's Brian Moore sat behind a desk. What, you can't jazz that up very much, so just, let's just not bother. Font. What more do you want? <laughs> yeah, an Apollo 11 font, so... Uh, <laughs> What more could you ask for? A 10-year-old space font that even Space 1999 will use. <laughs> uh, Brian Moore quickly starts off by telling us that today's episode features the game that stood head and shoulders above all the others this particular weekend, Liverpool versus Crystal Palace. Uh, what Brian doesn't tell us is that the match was bunged on at the end of this episode of the big match and was not the main featured game. That honour went to a match down in the second division and... There's no other way of saying it. I'm afraid for the second episode running, it features Chelsea. Sorry about that, everyone. I, say, I like the way he said it, because it was literally like kind of, and the most exciting match of the weekend was at Liverpool and Crystal Palace at the top of the first division. But we're going straight to the top of the second <laughs> division for our main feature. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Brian. Just to tease a really good match and then tell us we're going straight a whole division down and it's sodding Chelsea again. Yeah. <laughs> I can only apologise. These episodes are chosen at random, everyone, and our yeah. Patreon supporters actually chose the year for this big match, as they do for all of our episodes. So it's just the way things go, I'm afraid. But yeah, but you're right. Um, regional bias. It's. I mean, we sort of saw a bit of that in the last episode because it was again, it was Chelsea, and they were still in the second division. So it's. It was a thing that we we're witnessing here and I think in future if we, we I don't think where the ITV shows are concerned we shouldn't just restrict ourselves to the big match we we may have to dip into regional ITV football programs uh, in other parts of the UK that could be quite fun because I haven't seen many of those down the years but just to show we're not completely London centric I did like as well the fact that he teased the fact that there was a, a, a special big match Christmas program coming up and he said <laughs> yes. details about that later which, as it turns out, the only detail he had admitted was the time. Because <laughs> yeah, that, that was all that he said was, about it. <laughs> all he said was that there was going to be a Christmas special. Yeah, <laughs> at the end of the Thanks. match. And uh, tune in at the same sort of like, uh, here next week at 2.30 for the Christmas special. That's it. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, Good. thanks for teasing that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the main match sees Chelsea at home to Swansea City, after which it's Newcastle v QPR and then Liverpool versus Palace. After that, we're promised more viewers' letters, plus a preview of the special Christmas big match that was broadcast the week after this. So, we get to see the first match, Rich. It's Chelsea v Swansea City. 
Um, and yeah, first of all, it's off to Stamford Bridge. Unlike last time, we don't get much of a sight of the stadium itself, except to say that it looks a bit less desolate than when we saw it last time, four years previous. Uh, but being December, <laughs> yeah. it was still dark and dismal, what with it being lit London in the late 1970s. They've already got the lights on in this one, though. Yes. In the stands, so... You know. Yes, this is uh, Stamford Bridge. I think it's been a slightly redeveloped since we last saw it, but not not much. Ian Callaghan is getting towards the end of a career in which you can be sure he's never caused any of his managers a moment's loss of sleep. A truly great professional. Today playing his 699th league game, well over 800 in all. Brian Moore's commentary begins by pointing out two old codgers who are still earning a crust in the dog-eat-dog world of professional football. Why it's none other than former Liverpool star Ian Callaghan now playing for Swansea, and Ron Chopper Harris, the Chelsea stalwart who was 35 at this point and playing in the last year of a Chelsea career that had started in 1960. Uh, Ian Callaghan, incidentally, was 37 here and stayed at Swansea until 1981. Moore also points out that both players started their career before Chelsea's Colin Pates and Swansea's Jim Loveridge <coughs> were even born. Blimey, they must have been old. Um <laughs> Do you remember either of those two? Uh, I mean, it, they're a bit before my time even, so I'm not sure what your chances are of... Well, I'm assuming Ron much. Harris is Ron Chopper Harris. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I've Harris. heard of him, yeah. Yes. Um, Ian Callaghan, no, I've never heard of him. I even wrote that, but who? <laughs> Ian Callaghan, uh, never heard of him? <laughs> yeah, Ian Callaghan. I know he played 699 league games up until that exact day, because they mentioned that. Because oh, he was mentioned, indeed. <laughs> yes, um, but no, I have no idea who uh, Ian Callaghan was. Sorry, Ian. Well, he was he was in the classic Liverpool team when Keegan broke through. I think he was in with all the John Toshaks and people like that. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, Ron Chopper Harris. We won't go into where he got his uh, nickname from. That's because he had a helicopter. <laughs> oh, that'll be a it. Big yes, helicopter, go- and that's how he used to arrive at games before <laughs> he would cut people's legs off with the blades. <laughs> yeah. He was well known. He took professional foul to a whole new level by using um, an aircraft to <laughs> maim victims. <laughs> and thus, urban myths are born. Um, well, we get to see the lineups on this first match, not on the next two games, as we sort of found out last time, but we get to see the lineups here. Uh, any player names? that leapt off the screen for you, Richard? No, didn't even look. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even look. I don't, as, as I've said before, for these matches, I don't really care about the teams or the match. It's everything else around it I care about. So, no, I didn't even look at the lineup. I think there was some players on the pitch. Um, <laughs> some in um, blue. Someone mentioned Mickey Droy. I don't think he was playing as it was someone related to him or something. I, I don't know. He was injured, I think. So he's, yeah, well, there he you play. go. Yeah, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's going in one ear and out the other wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> um, among the ones the names I spotted um, there was Peter Barota who was the Chelsea goalkeeper and there was a bit of fuss sort of made about him at the time because he was Yugoslavian born he was one of the few Johnny foreigners that were playing in English football so everyone was like oh okay um, he joined Chelsea March 79 as a replacement for Peter Benetti who we discussed I think on maybe even in the first episode of this podcast um, he was prone to occasional forays upfield, dribbling the ball uh, against his teammates' wishes. So he was um, not always universally liked, but he became a bit of a character and a fan favourite. Um, John Bumstead, who I remember on Panini stickers, but a few years after this. Um, Clive Walker, who was in his pre-frizzy blonde perm phase. 
And uh, uh, there was a young fellow called Gary Johnson who came on at the end as a substitute. Um, no relation. Uh, I, now, the thing about him, if you look on Gary Johnson's Wikipedia page, there's a bit of a story to him, uh, alas. It says that uh, in December 2016, as the UK football sexual abuse scandal evolved, Johnson waived his right to anonymity and claimed he'd been abused uh, from the age of 13 by Chelsea's then chief scout, Eddie Heath. It was reported that in July 2015, he'd been paid £50,000 by Chelsea not to go public with the allegations. Chelsea apologised profusely to Johnson, who demanded further financial compensation from the club. So a bit of a sad story to that uh, young fellow who came on there, Gary Johnson. But on the day, at least, he uh, he did have something to celebrate, as we'll come on to. But um, it's one of those unfortunate things. You know, you're doing your research for this stuff. You occasionally do unearth something that you think, oh, I wish I hadn't seen that now. Poor guy. Um, in the Swansea team, you had Jeremy Charles, Robbie James and John Mahoney, who were all, all Welsh internationals. And there was a guy called Alan Waddle, who I thought might be related to Chris Waddle, but apparently he's completely unrelated. Um, he played 16 times for Liverpool between 1973 and 1977, and he was on the bench for the 1977 European Cup final, which I had no idea about, because you, you sort of think of your players like, your, well, roughly around this time, your Keegans and your uh, Kenny Dalgleishes and, I don't know, all these sort of, you know, Graham Soonesses and stuff, and there's this guy... Um, who was on the bench and never really heard of him up until I watched this particular episode, but he was on the bench in the 77 Cup Final, European Cup Final. Um, the referee is a chap called Gilbert Napthine, wonderful name. He's from Sileby, Leicestershire, or Silesby, as Brian Moore says, get it right, Brian. Um, he was a FIFA referee from 1978 to 1987, apparently. Never heard of him, but he was doing international matches during that period. And, um, and so the match begins, and we'll discuss what happened in the match a bit later on. But before that, Rich, let's compare notes on what we saw. I think we should begin with the kits. What did you make of the kits? Uh, well, I made the note that Swansea's kit looks nice and modern and sort of silky, silky smooth, um, whereas um, Chelsea's was looking very dated by this point. Mm. However, I did note that the, the um, Swansea number nine, um, his number was falling off. Yes, um, Robbie James. Yes, yes, it's uh, yes. So obviously they hadn't quite adapted to the super silky um, technology of the day in Indeed. terms of how to apply numbers. And that was probably like about five minutes into the game. These numbers yeah. peeling off. <laughs> good, good quality stuff back then. Yes, but yeah, um, it's another one of those kind of moments where you see a crossroads in in football kit design where Swansea's wearing this lovely new Adidas kit and yeah Chelsea in this thing that they were I think they might have even been wearing it in 75 when we saw them last time actually um so yes interesting sort of kits but I'd, yeah I'd go for the Swansea one that was a very nice looking kit that um the ball I think well it was made by Minerva who I've mentioned before but I don't know what the model was I'm not sure that anybody actually cares but Minerva were your sort of go-to football makers back then for the football league um, in a lot of cases, um, pitch side advertising boards. It's the moment everyone's been waiting for. Um, <laughs> what did we spot, Rich, around the pitch at Stamford Bridge? Well, now then. <laughs> so you you mentioned the podcast was sponsored by Anton Berg Marzipan. Well, Indeed. Anton Berg's here again, although this time yeah. he's advertising Danish chocolates. <laughs> Quite right. Yes, and, Good and spot. right next to him is Tom's Guld Bar. Uh, which is uh, a gold bar by, made by Tom Sweets, who we talked about before. Um, yes. They're still making that gold bar. Um, good old yeah. Tom. 
Um, <laughs> Thanks, Tom. I liked Yamaha organs just because it made me think of like um, human organs. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, so maybe think they and... had a yeah, they had a sideline in kind of organ transplants. <laughs> yeah. um, there was one that I noticed called Gayol, which I don't know what that was. G A hyphen Gayol, I think I always pronounce G-gay-jol. it. I don't know if that's right or not. I'd, well, that's the thing. It depends where it comes from, doesn't it? As to whether it's yeah. Gayol. Or Gajal. Um, Do you know so what? I, I, know I what saw was, it, but I didn't even. I forgot to look it up as well. I was just going to say I saw it, didn't write it down, and I didn't look it up. But we might have to retrospectively check that during this recording for a live update, maybe at some point. But yes, live update. Daft trucks, which I, I remember Daft <laughs> because our first car that I remember that we ever had was a Daft, a brown yeah. one. Yes. Um, yeah, my dad hated it. He said it was a crap <laughs> car. I think it had like kind of. Um, like a sort of uh, old version of CVT, like the continuously variable transmission thing. Right. Um, and he said it was god awful. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't Daft Trucks sponsor like the Full Members Cup or something yeah, like that? Yeah, Leyland Daft, yeah. Leyland Daft, that's right. Yeah. I didn't realise at the time how big a company they were, actually. It was only when I was older. I thought, oh, yeah, they're, they're like Dutch. big. Daft, I think. I actually don't know. I'm sure they were Dutch. That's item number two on the any other business section. What D stands for Dutch auto function. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, Um, the the number. I saw um, Southern Comfort, which I thought was quite sort of out there because I don't think I've ever seen Southern Comfort on any advertising board ever at any (laughs) point in time. So that was quite go ahead, really. Um, did you spot Standard Chartered, Liverpool's sponsors since I did, 2010? And I, I made the note that they've still got the same logo as they had back then. Yeah. But again, um, the first I heard of them was when they sponsored Liverpool. I didn't know they'd been going since at least the late 70s, so that was quite eye-opening. A um, couple of sportswear companies advertising, which, do you know what they were, Rich? Oh, I saw Gola. Yes. Um, and I saw Umbro. Umbro were there as well, yes. Uh, there was also Metaxa. Which Good old Metaxa. I, I don't know what Metaxa is, but I just remember seeing it in the World Cup a lot. But I've looked it up, and it's a drink, I think. It's, it's an brandy, alcoholic drink. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, um, they've been doing the rounds for a long time. Yeah. Duckums were there, as usual. <laughs> Did you see the um, the charity appeal at one end of the... Uh, I think it was at the right end, end of the ground. Was that the, please give at Christmas to the National Children's Home? <laughs> yes. Correct. Sponsored Quite prominent by, little board. Sponsored by Rolf Harris. And oh, Jim no. Savile. Yeah. Sponsored by BBC Mastermind. <laughs> uh, there was also Everard Ovenden, which I don't know yes. what that is. But I just like the name. Yes. And another, that's another one that you used to see a lot in football in the 70s and 80s. And I never knew what it was. Uh, basically, they're um, a, a paper processing company. Yeah. So I think they used to sort of process paper for newspapers and that kind of stuff. Uh, paper merchants. And they were one-time shirt sponsors of Leighton Orient. Fact fans, huh? don't get that on other podcasts, I tell you that. Um, <laughs> the level of detail, and for pretty good reasons as well. Um, John Bar Scotch Whiskey, a brand I've never heard of. Not a whiskey drinker, so that passed me by. Um, what else do I do? There were lots, actually. Um, I also saw um, the Associates Financial Services, which sounds like a kind of... Sopranos kind of gang that sort of knock on your door <laughs> where the financial services the associates um, Unipart as ever were there Chelsea Building Society of course Chelsea Building Society wouldn't be any other would it really 
So yes, plenty there to get your teeth into if you like those sort of references. And um, what other stuff did we spot during the game apart from all of that stuff? Any any sort well, of incidents and things happening in the game? Well, before the game had even started, I spotted the first Invercar. Um, oh yes, of course, Invercar. And, yes. and then immediately, in the same sort of camera shot, spotted what appeared to be like an entire car dealership um, at the side <laughs> of the the main stand. Um, and then I realised, and I hadn't noticed it on the last one when Chelsea were in, is that yeah. the main stand stops about twenty metres before the end of the pitch. And that's yeah. because when they built it, they were going to move the whole pitch northwards. Mm-hmm. And because they ran out of money because of the financial crisis that they had, uh, they never did until like the 90s when they mm. built the next lot of stands. So, yeah, it was really odd because it's like suddenly you see this like Invercar and then there's about 40 cars just by the side of the stand. You're thinking, are running a dealership or something? <laughs> Well, that's what when we had uh, Rich Nelson on, he made a reference to um, you know the having cars parked near the pitch and the ball might hit one of them to and sort of halve the value of the car if it sort of smashed the windscreen or whatever. So there's, I think he sort of obliquely re- referenced that. Yeah. But, uh, yes, very peculiar. Um, there were a couple of Inver cars at the right hand end of the ground, and I think there were a few others, but the, the camera was darting around so much you couldn't easily see them. Um, good old Inver cars. Um, when Bumstead scored Chelsea's first goal, we see the electronic scoreboard. Always love an electronic scoreboard. It was quite as a big everyone one. should know. It was, yes. It had um, uh, the uh, the guy who scored the goal, or the, or the number of the goal scorer, in this case number four. Um, obviously it had the scorer and everything, and it also had the time of the golden goal competition uh, namely 14 minutes and 49 seconds 48 seconds I think it was so if you had to if you bought a ticket on your way into Chelsea uh, you'd open it up and see what the time was and if your your ticket was closest to the first goal going in then you won a prize I think that's kind of how it worked I remember the old Jesper Carrot routine where he used to say that Birmingham City scored that few scored goals that rarely that when he got the golden goal ticket he opened it up and it said October um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway um, also, um, when the players leave the field or left the field at the end of the first half, two big cheers go up in the crowd. And I think that's because the announcer was telling them that their London rivals were probably like behind in their respective games that were going on. Like, you know, and uh, West Ham are 3-0 down against Fulham. Hooray! And there was one <laughs> cheer that went. So was, I think that's the reason why they were cheering. Um, and also, of course, it goes without saying, by the end of the match, the pitch was looking a proper cabbage patch. It was properly mashed it was it was awful i mean it kind of reminds because they said it had been heavily sandy because they said yeah. oh it's been raining quite a bit here you know well it was the 70s obviously um but <laughs> i remember cov's pitch looking like that in the late 80s um it was awful i mean it was just again due to poor drainage um the the pitch was waterlogged half the time so i just remember at one point the cov goal looking like a beach because it was just so full of sand yes Oh yeah, yeah. My team, West Ham, have had pitches like that down the years. No, no doubt about that. Um, a really hilarious sight, I thought, was as soon as the final whistle goes, the camera cuts to show you about ten thousand people streaming out onto the street, almost like as if the final whistle was like, right, let's go, and, and off they went. They just like just legged it out of the stadium, as if that was supposed to be some kind of positive sign of like how good the match was, really. Um, <laughs> Uh, Brian Moore calls Chelsea's win not entirely convincing and a little unkind on Swansea, which must have meant he went down well with the Chelsea fans that week. Um, 
And at the beginning of the match, Brian Moore also tells us that Swansea are in their customary all white, which they weren't because they were wearing black socks. Get it right, Brian. <laughs> oh, dear, he does get these things wrong. Um, anyway, a, a brief summary of the game. Um, essentially, uh, Bumstead scored Chelsea's first from close range. In the second half, Tommy Langley tried to dribble the ball around the keeper, but dived in a suspiciously late manner to try and get a penalty. Uh, which Brian Moore calls out as a dive. Uh, Robbie James hit the crossbar. Tommy Langley made it 2-0 when Glenn Leatheran and his number eight for Swansea collided. Jeremy Charles hit the post for Swansea late on and Gary Johnson ended the game by scoring Chelsea's third after receiving a ball from Langley in front of an open goal. So there we go. So Chelsea won that game um, and a convincing win it was. So then we get the studio summing up and uh, Brian Moore gives us another chance to see Chelsea's first goal, which he's keen to stress, had a touch of the offside about it. But with the aid of a slow motion replay confirms that Mike Fillery was not offside when he received the ball from Tommy Langley, a decision that the referee got right the first time around, thereby rendering the whole exercise pointless. That said, Moore admits he thought it was originally offside and that the ref knew far better than he but there's no stopping Chief Inspector Moore when he's got the bit between his teeth. And we're soon invited to look at some more footage showing the incident where Tommy Langley took a belated dive in the penalty area. Slow motion behind the goal camera foot- footage shows that, in fact, the referee was right again. And Brian Moore had misjudged the original incident. Don't talk to me about trial by television, says Moore, before his face is mercifully saved by a commercial break. Um, he's this is he's a serial offender on this, isn't he, Brian? He does love to try and stir up trouble when, before admitting that actually he was wrong all the time. But this is what I do like, though, is the fact that they do actually point out when the refs got it right. It's like you, mm. you get so used to sort of modern day just slagging the ref constantly. It's, it's actually really nice to see them backing the officials up for once. Indeed, quite so. And after that, we're ushered on to the match between Newcastle and QPR. Brian Moore tells us that Newcastle started the previous day at the top of the second division, with QPR two points behind them. The pictures for this match come from Tyne T's television, and the commentator is Roger Thames. Aimed towards shoulder. Shoulder with a chance to lob. Oh, that's superbly done by Alan Shoulder. Well, that ball bounced awkwardly for Alan Shoulder. Now, Thames was the main commentator on Tyne Tease's equivalent to the big match, which was called Shoot. Uh, he controversially took over from Kenneth Wollstonehome in the hot seat after Wollstonehome had been tempted to switch from the BBC to ITV in 1974. Five years on, however, Wollstonehome's commentary style was considered a bit old-fashioned, and he ultimately left Tyne Tees rather than being considered as Roger Thames' understudy. What did you think of um, Roger Thames' commentary style? Um, it sounded uh, very kind of like he, he sounded like a young fella trying to be all sort of shouty and eager. I, I kind of liked it actually, but I'll be honest, I didn't really pay much attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy. This is the thing. I'm so I spent all the matches looking round the ground, at interesting things to see. That I'm not really paying attention to the match at all. <laughs> No, that's fair enough. These are the things I've spotted. But yeah, Roger Thames, he's, he's, I don't really recognise the name, if I'm honest. I don't remember him being around when I was a kid. But he seemed quite a sort of young, eager commentator. And I can see why, like, 
Kenneth Walton home, as we all know from the 66 World Cup and all that, did sound very kind of like an old granddad sort of commentating on football. And um, I think uh, a lot of the Newcastle and Sunderland fans who would have heard Roger Thames week in, week out, didn't like him very much because he was a bit too shouty. But I didn't mind him, to be perfectly honest. So anyway, there we go. Um, so Newcastle v QPR. And uh, again, the kits. Oh, we don't get a team lineup. I mean, we've sort of said this before. The second and third games on these big matches, we don't get a team lineup. So we're just left sort of trying to grasp players out of thin air and trying to work out who's who. But first of all, the kits. Uh, what did you make of the two kits in this match, Rich? It's a similar scenario. You've got one team looking very old-fashioned, Newcastle. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're wearing Buckter, I think. Um, yes. And then a QPR, is it Adidas they're wearing? Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, looking like Swansea with their Adidas kit, very sort of fresh and modern. Um, mm. Typical sort of early 80s kit. So, yeah, it, it just mm-hmm. kind of, it's, it's a really interesting sort of transitional time in kits. You know, you've got, like you say, you've got a lot of teams who've been wearing the same kit for probably four or five years, and then a lot who are just starting with a new kit supplier. And yeah, you can see the difference there. Yeah, it's it's like like QPR have come from the future and they've gone back in time to play Newcastle. It's kind of one of those odd juxtapositions, really. Um, and also, like when I was growing up, and I'm guessing you would have had the same experience, but it, it, on the rare occasions you saw QPR playing in their away kit, it was nearly always red and black. And this was an all-red kit. And, I, and it slightly jarred with me in a way. But um, like I think in the 70s, they used to have a red and black halved kit. And then in the 80s, it was red and black hoops you know, with Guinness across the middle or whatever. Um, but yeah, all red was sort of, it's quite a good kind of contrast to blue and white hoops, I suppose. So it worked quite well on that on that level. It does, does the job, yeah. It does the job, indeed so. And, um, and the ball, do you remember what the ball was in this game? It was round. Um, <laughs> Mostly <laughs> white. Leather. Wasn't it the... Uh, I'm trying to think of the mate, but wasn't it the one where it's just got like the sort of red line all the way through it, made yes, up of the panels? Red stripe. Yes. yes, the football league ball, as we sort of loosely yes. call it, which has again been mentioned before, which I love. I just love it. I think I did an article on like my top five footballs for the Football Attic blog site once, and I think that was one of my five. Did you do one of those at the time? I can't remember. Uh, no, I tended to do all the, the worst of things. Cause they <laughs> That's right, you did, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> You'd write an article and I'd immediately write an article about the worst versions of those and then it would get like 10 times the amount of views. Yes, you swine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what can I write about? I don't know. Hang on, I'll wait till Chris writes an article and then just do the opposite. Yeah, we should have called the blog site Light and Shade because it was just like <laughs> there were two versions of every po- uh, blog article. Um Yes, pitch side advertising boards. Now, it's, I know this is very deliberate that we always go for these, but it's one of the lovely things that I think to, you know, we, ha- we have to discuss this stuff. Otherwise, you'd only complain. Um, which, which boards did you spot this time around? There are some interesting ones. I mean, for one thing, uh, Jaffa oranges and grapefruits. <laughs> grapefruits. And yes. I, I couldn't see who the company was. Just that. Just Jaffa. And it just really, kind of yeah. took me. Oh, yeah. I suppose, yeah. Duh. <laughs> um, but I suppose but they are the cakes as well you see well, I suppose that's the thing it's like <laughs> Jaffa oranges um, <laughs> but it's like I just it takes me back to a time and we've talked before about like you know me going on my summer holidays to like some seaside town in England and it just reminds me of the, the fact that, that when you go back to the days when a starter for a, a like a breakfast was like cornflakes or yeah. some other cereal 
or a glass of orange juice or a glass of grapefruit juice. And when I yes. say glass, I mean a virtual shot glass, you know, so small. <laughs> and it's just so weird to think that that, I mean, like grapefruit juice, who the freaking hell wants grapefruit juice? It's vile. It's like so bitter. But it's like, it just it just reminds me of that sort of time, um, the sort of late 70s, early 80s, when when that was like a luxury, you know, a grapefruit yeah. juice, a, a sort of small glass of grapefruit juice was a starter. Well, not only that, but also like a half a grapefruit. Um, oh, yeah. If you saw an advert on TV for, for Jaffa grapefruits, they would sort of have this image of, you know, two middle class you know, a middle-class couple sitting around a dining table and then have half a grapefruit, usually with a half a glacé cherry in the middle just to make yes. it look exotic. <laughs> and But again, I like when I can't remember... I don't even remember the last time I tried eating a grapefruit, but I tried it as a kid and it was the most hideous thing I'd ever tasted. I think and, it's an old person thing because my yeah. dad used to really like them. And I think it's like, I can imagine now, I mean, they're still really bitter, but I can imagine yeah. I'd enjoy it more now than I did when I was a child because... Yeah. Obviously, you know, you know, you tend to like sweeter things when you were a kid, but yeah, I just remember like occasionally sort of thinking, oh, actually, I'll try it, and having like a, you know, a glass of grapefruit juice as my starter, and immediately mm. regretting it. You know, I could have had soup, <laughs> you know, not obviously for breakfast. That was a main meal, <laughs> but that was another <laughs> thing. It was, like you say, it used to be a starter for a main meal as well. So in the yeah. evening, like yeah, half a grapefruit or a glass of fruit juice, you know, was a starter. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love the British Avenue as a as a <laughs> cultural race. And the thing is, though, that was still going on really in this in the late eighties as well. Yeah. Well, I think the thing was with certainly with grapefruit and grapefruit juice is that it was seen as low fat. Um, so I think that's why a lot of people got into it as a sort of health food. But I just think, why would you start the day drinking something that feels like liquidized razor blades? It's just. Like, <laughs> oh, I did. But I remember. I think my. Um, uncle, my uncle Les, God rest his soul. He used to like. I remember him saying, "Oh, I like yeah, I like a you know bit of grapefruit as my for my breakfast." And you think you weirdo, um, or not? Not in those words, obviously. I, I mean, I loved him dearly, but I just sort of thought, why? But there are other better offerings. You know, the aforementioned uh, uh, cornflakes, for example. I mean, you can't go wrong with cornflakes. They won't yeah, completely. Cornflakes were old hat by that point, though. Well, yes, they were. They were yesterday's cereal. It was all about the health kick. It's all about but, the fruit. <laughs> Kellogg's cornflakes, yesterday's cereal. But the thing is, I remember with grapefruits, you used to sprinkle a bit of sugar on it, so it's like the health kick went out the window <laughs> to make it palatable. <laughs> yeah, just give me an orange, that'd make it easier. Yeah. I could have handled an orange for, for breakfast, I think. Um, what else did we say? I saw uh, Metro Radio, which I think was the local independent radio station in Newcastle. That was one of the boards. Um of course, the obligatory Newcastle Brown Ale and Newcastle Exhibition Ale. Yes. Uh, they displayed prominently. Any others you saw there? Uh, some Blessed Bread. Yes. Which I had forgotten about. I completely yeah. forgot. Because I don't think you can get that anymore. But yeah, I completely no. forgot about Sun Blessed Bread. Um, uh, <laughs> there was uh, an advert for Formica, which I saw. <laughs> Insist uh, on Formica. Just behind the goal. But I couldn't see who the company was. Is that what it was? Yeah, Insist um, on Formica. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for what? Um, <laughs> there was there was another one that says Andrew's what looked like heat for hire. Ah, uh, yeah, behind the goal. It's like, yes. what? How do you hire heat? <laughs> Just come round with like some like a box full of on fire things and throw it at you. Yeah, have that for an hour. A box of firewood and, a, yeah. and some matches. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't. I think I was so confused by that that I didn't even write it down, but I do remember seeing it. Well, I, I saw it several times. I was trying to work out what it was. I thought, I'm sure it said Andrews and then something for hire, and I couldn't see. And I was like, and several times I looked and thought, I think that's heat. And then eventually I was like, I think it is. It's just yes. bizarre. And there was <laughs> Zybart. Well, I don't know what that was. Oh, yeah. That was no, that's... the side of the pitch. I, I think by that stage, my brain was starting to melt because I was thinking, why, how could you hire heat? And I just, I didn't write anything <laughs> else down after that point. But yes. Um, that was Zybart is rust proofing, apparently. Ah, well, there we go. Mm. We're almost getting back to the old um, stone enamelers again. It's back in that sort of <laughs> territory. Um, and I also saw one for war gas, which is what war gets if war eats it's, too many baked beans. I was going to say, is that Geordie <laughs> gas? War gas. <laughs> war gas. <laughs> Essentially, yes. Um, and the, we, again, I say we don't get the team lineups, but um, were there any players that you heard mentioned on the pitch that or were you in, in advertising boards? Chris Woods, yes. As in, and I read the note, was it, was it the Chris Woods? I mean, I'm assuming it must be. Yeah. It was, so yes. That, that was, I was very surprised because I, you know, I always thought he was fairly young in the late 80s when he was sort of Peter Shilton's understudy. Hmm. Um, but well, he can't have been. You know, he must have been in his sort of probably late 20s, early 30s, I guess. Yeah, well, he was. Shilton um, was about ninety when he stopped playing. So, <laughs> indeed, um, he, yeah, Chris Wood's future England goalkeeper um, signed from Nottingham Forest after three years without a league appearance. He spent two years at QPR before moving on to Norwich, as well as Rangers and Sheffield Wednesday, amongst others. Yes, the very same. Anyone else? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. There were I, there were lots of names on here that sort of um, chimed with me to some extent. Um, you had uh, Clive Allen, of course. The oh, Clive well, Allen. yeah, Clive Allen. Yeah, obviously Clive Allen. <laughs> oh, actually, no, Glenn Roder. Glenn Roder. Well. Didn't he play for Newcastle at some point? Absolutely, yes. Uh, my uh, Atari 800 is telling me that uh, Glenn Roder <laughs> was a defender who spent five years at QPR, captaining the team in the 1982 FA Cup final against Tottenham. He had six years at Newcastle United, where one of his tasks was to help a young Paul Gascoigne settle in, uh, and latterly enjoyed spells as manager of Watford, West Ham, Newcastle again, and Norwich. Uh, sadly, Rhoda died in February of this year at the age of 65, having succumbed to the brain tumour that was first diagnosed back in April 2003. RIP, Glenn Rhoda. Um, but yes, uh, Clive Allen, as mentioned, and he's about halfway through his two-year spell at QPR at this point. Um, while he was at QPR, he scored 32 goals in 49 appearances. At the end of this season, he signed for Arsenal, where he enjoyed a long and productive period that lasted around 15 minutes before moving on to Crystal Palace <laughs> in a move that saw Kenny Sanson make a switch in the opposite direction. And uh, you can still hear him these days. He crops up from time to time as a co-commentator on uh, f- football matches on TV. So that's what he's up to these days. Um, what else did we get? We had uh, Tony Curry, 70s football legend, but um, this is very much him at the end of his career, really. He played 400 times in an 11-year period uh, between Sheffield United and then Leeds United, and he was held in high regard throughout his career. He was named Sheffield United's greatest player ever in 2014 and scored the big match's golden goal, which was their version of goal of the season the year before this, and he played 17 times for England. Uh, other players, there was uh, on the Newcastle side, you had um, Peter With, a tall, powerful striker who made his name as one of Brian Clough's early signings at Nottingham Forest in the mid-70s. 
Having formed an effective partnership with Tony Woodcock, he was sold to Newcastle early in the 78-79 season and he averaged a goal every three games during his two-year run at Newcastle. His most high-profile moment, though, of course, was uh, when he was at Aston Villa and he scored the only goal of the 1982 European Cup final against Bayern Munich. A game I can remember watching when I was a kid. Couldn't final. tackle a dog, though. He didn't tackle a dog. I was going to come to it. So we come on to the notable <laughs> incident. So there was, there's only really one, not so much an elephant in the room as a dog. Um, maybe you could elucidate and tell the listeners in case they haven't seen this. What what happened? A dog ran on the pitch. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is it. A dog ran on the pitch and then ran around a bit. Uh, and <laughs> they made a comment about the fact that it must have been a very fit dog because it kept out running everyone. And then Peter With sort of rugby tackled it but it, he missed it. It kind of got hold of it, but then it just sort of ran away. But then they sort of said, they think that that must have actually um, worn it down because then the police managed to catch it just after that. So well done, Peter. <laughs> yes. Yes, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure, it might have been a border collie. I'm not really a, a dog expert, but I think it may have been. Um, and um, Roger Thames, the commentator, says, who brings a dog into a football match? I really don't know. People that are probably wanting some decent company while watching a football match I suppose but I don't know oh, yeah. maybe just running off the street who knows who, who um, knows it's <laughs> Newcastle it was wild at the time <laughs> anything's roaming happen. the street <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, as you say Peter with uh, dived to catch the dog but failed in his efforts but he played to the crowd with a show of frustration and disappointment uh, with that is not the dog um <laughs> After a lot of running, two policemen eventually brought the comedic interlude to a close and they removed the animal from the pitch. And it was never seen again. <laughs> the, the dog, that is, not Peter with. Yeah. Um, it ended up in H-block in Long Cash. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, quick match summary. Alan Shoulder, he sent a looping shot up and over the keeper to give Newcastle a 1-0 lead. Paul Goddard equalised with a deflected shot from just inside the penalty area. Glenn Roder headed in from close range, which gave QPR a 2-1 lead. Immediately after the dog was removed, Newcastle had a free kick and Peter With scored from a header off of it. Well, he can catch dogs and he can score goals, says Roger Thames incorrectly. He didn't catch the dog, did he? <laughs> God's sake, these people. Let's get it right. Tommy Cassidy hit the bar in the second half before getting Newcastle's third with a long-range volley. Oh, what a cracker, said Roger Thames correctly this time. Uh, Clive Allen scored what he thought was Rangers third and ran off for a delirious celebration before realising it had actually been disallowed for offside and uh, with blasted in his second to make it 4-2 to Newcastle that was that second game of that particular episode of the big match Brian Moore uh, afterwards showed us a caption showing the top six places in the second division following Newcastle's 4-2 victory all sort of made with bits of cardboard and details superimposed on top of it well, we see that there's a right old battle going on in the race for the three promotion spots currently occupied by Newcastle, Chelsea and Luton, although Leicester, Birmingham and QPR aren't far behind. If you don't want to know what three teams ended up getting promotion, look away now. It was Leicester, Sunderland and Birmingham. Oh, sorry, I should have said block your ears now. Anyway, now it's time for your letters, says Brian Moore, who says that an incident the previous week involving a linesman juggling with his flag had prompted several people to write in, including Brian Hall of 87 School Road, Tilehurst, Reading in Berkshire, just just down the road from the Reading Ikea, in case you were wondering. Um, 
And uh, thanks to him, we're shown the incident again in which said linesman lost control of his flag as he went to raise it, causing the flag to fly briefly into the air before being caught again by said linesman. Moore allows himself a little chuckle because this sort of thing passed for top quality entertainment on ITV back in 1979. What do you make of that? Cracked me up something chronic that not the actual incident itself, but the <laughs> amount they made of it. It was just like because yeah. they called it like a linesman juggling with his flag. Whereas what happens was he literally went to raise the flag and the flag kind of just flopped out of his hand. Yeah. It dropped down in front of him and he caught it on the way down. It's like that's not juggling. <laughs> that's just literally he lost it for a second and caught it before and it hit the it. floor. It's like that's not juggling. And then they were kind of like. I mean, it just reminded me of, like, they used to have on, like, sports programs, probably usually on the Christmas specials and stuff, the bit where they used to have, like, a sort of 10-minute montage of footballers. And it would be in the early days when you had, like, you could mess around with the VT. And so (laughs) it'd be, like, footballers falling over and then going backwards and then falling over again and going backwards. And and they'd be pissing themselves in the studio about it. Like, ha, 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 it's like someone running backwards. It's like, you know, and it's like, and I remember as a child laughing myself, it's <laughs> but yeah, you look back at it, and it sort of reminded me of this. It was like a yeah. moment of hilarity when you know, and then and that brought to mind other incidents of when things went wrong <laughs> with flags, and then it's like, and then it shows another one where it's like some linesman's flags breaks. I mean, yeah. by which all that actually happened was the I think the ties that held the flag onto the pole obviously broke and therefore you couldn't retire and it was like oh the flag's broken what are they gonna do and, they, and in the end they got another flag and it's like wow it's like alan partridge style anecdotes you know? <laughs> yes oh dear because yeah, i was expecting them to sort of do the backwards and forwards thing with the guy who threw his yes. flag in the air and they didn't do it i thought well there was an obvious open goal wasn't it i mean nah. And then, of course, they had to get Jimmy Hill coming on as a linesman, you know. That's right, yes. At, uh, at this point, um, after seeing the uh, the Tottenham v Nottingham Forest match where the linesman flag had broken into, I had to call an ambulance as my aching sides were in need of urgent <laughs> medical attention. But Moore tells us that even these two linesman fails are nothing compared to the incident in 1972 when the official was injured during a game between Arsenal and Liverpool. I wonder if you remember who it was, says Moore, that stepped into the breach. Why, yes, we do, Brian, because this incident has been shown so many times on ITV down the years that there's barely a man, woman or child that doesn't have a photographic memory of it. Of course, it was Moore's old big match co-presenter Jimmy Hill looking resplendent in a pale blue umbro tracksuit and white Adidas trainers. What larks? Brian Moore then apologises that they can't show more match action as the big match is limited to only three games, you ungrateful bastards, which may have gone some way to appeasing 16-year-old John Burroughs of the Jays, Croft Lane, Chipperfield, Kings Langley in Hertfordshire. Or indeed, Haskell Solomon of 4 St. Michael's Avenue, Hemel Hempstead, also in Hertfordshire. Uh, Both had travelled to Burnley the previous week to see their team Watford, but didn't know why the Hornets equaliser was disallowed in the last minute. We then see a clip from that match where Luther Blissett puts the ball in the net, but hits the roof when his goal isn't given. Brian Moore is none the wiser. It looked like a perfectly good goal to him. Uh, although, as we've already discovered, Brian isn't necessarily the best judge when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, it's a bit like Lazy Web, isn't it, really, Richard? Back then, it's like people writing in saying, I didn't see something. Could you could you show it to me? <laughs> I, well, I missed I like that goal. As, I like the fact as well, he said, uh, he said, obviously, we're limited. We can only show three matches. But here's the goals from Bristol yeah, City. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Hang on. So you've just said you can't show any more matches. And here's some more. 
Yeah, I was expecting him to say, I'm sorry, we, we can't actually show that thing you want. So, bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Uh, anyway, continuing the theme, uh, Julian Webber of 2 Litchfield Court, Litchfield Grove, Finchley, London N3, went to see What's his that, team. Is that the Julian Webber? As I think in it, Andrew Lloyd Webber's brother. Oh, of course. Do you know what? I didn't make the connection. Although I'm not sure Julian Lloyd Webber. I don't know. I don't. Well, know. I, I don't think he was living in Finchley. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's the most run-down part of London, but it, <laughs> he would have been living in a better part of the world, I think. It'd but been you, gentrified. Yeah. Um, he uh, went to see his team Tottenham in their away game last week at Bristol City. He spotted a camera filming the game, the observant little thing, so we're given a chance to see the goals in that game, courtesy, it would seem, of some Super 8 footage that looks like we're squinting at it through the dusty rear windscreen of a Chrysler Alpine in a sandstorm. We used Uh, to have a Talbot Alpine. Did you? We did, yeah, a big red one. (laughs) It was was nice, actually. It was a very nice car, yeah. It was like, my dad said it was like a tank driving it. (laughs) I was going to say, was it mechanically sound? I suppose it sounds like it probably was. I think so, yeah, yeah, and then then he bought swapped that for a Maestro, and said he said that was the worst car he ever had, <laughs> so even worse than the DAF. That's when things went wishes, downhill. Yeah, he wishes he'd never bought it. He said. <laughs> I, all I can remember about Maestros is when they first came on the market. It was the supposed to be the first car with a computer, like a computer yes. voice in it or something. Yes. Did yours? It was. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it did. No, I think that was like the Vandenplas model or something, you know, the kind of the posh one. Right. Uh, I remember it had a warning about seatbelts, though. Um, and I also remember it not actually having any seatbelts in the back uh, because <laughs> oh, right. we bought it um, around about the time when seatbelts became mandatory mm. in the back if you had them. But if you right. didn't have them, obviously you didn't have to wear them because you didn't have them. Hmm. Um, but you didn't have to get them retrofitted either. So yeah. I remember the we'd literally bought this car just as the seatbelt law came in, but there were no seatbelts in the back, so we didn't have to wear them. So well, we could we were free to fly through the windscreen, <laughs> you know, if we ever crashed or crushed the person in front of us. You retained your personal freedoms and privileges. That's the yes, main thing. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> free um, to die at my own family's <laughs> hand. <laughs> Dad, a deer to break sharply. Go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My face. Uh, thankfully, um, Martin Tyler was on hand to provide us with a little bit of commentary on that uh, Tottenham game that was requested. We see Paul Miller scoring from a Ricky Villa corner. Ozzy Ardiles being brought down in the penalty area. Glenn Hoddle scoring from the resulting penalty. Tom Ritchie pulling one back for Bristol City again from a penalty. And finally, Glenn Hoddle making it 3-1 to Spurs from a glancing header. Um, I don't know if you spotted in this particular sequence, Rich, there was one advertising board that was massive. Uh, did you was see that, it? And who was the it sponsor? Was, it was, wasn't it Castorillos or something for like the sort of cigars? Castellos cigars. That were, that's yes. the one. Yeah, I did note that literally the whole all the advertising boardings at Bristol were cigarette-based because there was one on, <laughs> on top of the stand behind the goal as well. And that was like for, I think it was Marlborough or something like that. Right. Yeah, basically all the all the sort of advertising was smoke yourselves to death, you bastards. <laughs> It's just like not your not your small little board on the pitch side. It was like no. the side of like almost the entire length of the pitch. It was, it was, it was gigantic. Smoke yeah. these. Yeah. Pop these in your mouth. <laughs> Shame about Spurs' defeat to Aston Villa yesterday. Moore says as we head for another commercial break. But when we return from that, it was on to the third and final match in today's edition: Liverpool v Crystal Palace. Liverpool with 
what Brian Moore describes as a worldwide reputation and Crystal Palace with Terry Venables as manager. How would the young Palace starlets cope with Kenny Dalgleish and co, not to mention the noise from the cop? Pretty bloody badly, as it turned out, but we needed the pictures from Granada and commentary from Gerald Sinstat in order to make that absolutely certain. Dalgleish running right across the edge of the penalty area to come for the pass. Cannon nipped in, but Dalgleish has made the header. Turned in again, and chased by Sunis, who's taken it away from Burridge, but into the side netting for a goal kick. So... This was the supposedly the the biggest of the big matches in this episode. Um, Gerald Sinstat commentator. You said you liked Gerald Sinstat, didn't you before? Yeah, yes. I always loved Gerald Sinstat. I mean, I say I never really heard many matches that he commentated on, but he used to do the roundup on Match of the Day, and yes. I just loved his voice. So he had a great voice. Um, so yeah, quite a vuncular, yeah, yeah, very nice indeed. Um, again, no team lineups, no mention of the referee, no nothing. Uh, so we go straight to the kits and of course Liverpool in that Umbro kit with well not on this case Hitachi on the on the front because of course it was a TV game so you wouldn't have seen Hitachi but the big white collar and Palace in an Admiral kit which which of those two would you rather have uh, worn or maybe added to your collection if someone said you could have one of those two shirts uh, well probably the Liverpool one in terms of value but <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, but then only, only for selling it on um, no I, yeah. I really like the Palace shirt I'm, I never really liked that Liverpool shirt again very very old fashioned yeah. at the time and the, the Palace shirt looked much more modern um, so yeah I, I mean I really like the Palace sash shirt as well it was mm. uh, but yeah, that Liverpool kit looks so dated even then you know it did yeah, yeah. The, the, the big thick white collar on it as well <laughs> I mean, it's sort of quite iconic and all that, but um, I do remember at the time looking at it and thinking, like, won't the 1980s hurry up and arrive? Because we, we've got to do something better than that, surely, for England's best team. Uh, anyway. Exactly. Yes. Now, advertising boards. Not much to talk about here, would you not say? No, that was the weird thing. Um, so, obviously, Hitachi are there, because obviously they're the Liverpool sponsors. Uh-huh. And other than that, Barrett, I think, Holmes. Yes. And that's about it. Literally, the whole ground was free of advertising sponsors, which was bizarre. <laughs> Indeed. Um, it was. I think I counted three Hitachi boards and three Barrett yeah. boards. Um, and the only other thing I saw was the classic sort of half-time scoreboard thing that they would have yes. by the side of the pitch where they'd put out the numbers. You look in your match day program and say, right, match A, West Ham v Coventry. Right, okay. So, they're, oh, they're putting up... Zero zero as the halftime score, and then you'd go on to match B or whatever. And so as they would, it was common practice at the time. But that was about it. And I think there was a split second. You see like a camera angle from one behind one of the goals, and you see the side of the pitch that hardly had any boards on it. <laughs> it's like that old thing that you mentioned on a previous podcast. So yeah. a rare glimpse of the um, the side of the pitch that time forgot. Uh, but there wasn't much to report on from that. Um, Lineups. I mean, this is. I mean, if you're talking about sort of players that are familiar, I mean, you might as well just say the Liverpool team of the late '70s because they're all there: Ray Clements, Dalglish, Soonis, McDermott. I mean, they're uh, just take your pick. Classic team. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> no, my my notable person on the lineups was Vince Hilaire. Yes, but only because Hilaire. only because famous for being. Most, you know, mostly famous for being a footballer, but I would say more famous for being name-checked in the beloved single "Hello." <laughs> Never remind me of that again. On my brain's now scanning through. <laughs> 
It's the beloved, the ones that did the sun rising. Oh, um, of course. Sorry, yes. They, yeah. Their first song that they sort of broke through with was called "Hello," where they just said hello to lots of people, and one of them was Vince Hilaire. Vince Hilaire. That's right. Sorry, I'm thinking of completely. Yes, I now I know what you mean. It's slow. <laughs> oh dear. Tommy yes. Cannon, Bobby Ball. <laughs> hello, hello, <laughs> hello, hello. Yes, you know the one, yes. listeners. Yeah, one says hello a lot. Yeah. Vince Hilaire. <laughs> Strangely, didn't say hello to uh, Lionel Richie. Um, <laughs> other players on the pitch, um, on the Crystal Palace side at least, Jerry Francis, who was sort of uh, he was a sort of big name in the middle of the seventies. Became a big England player back then, but again, we're starting to see him at the tail end of his career. Maybe Kenny Sansom, as mentioned earlier on, who went on to swap with uh, Clive Allen, Dave Swindlehurst, who I know is a West Ham player. He went on to play for West Ham eventually. Lots of well-known players. John, did I say John Barry Jingle? Yeah. Um, not much to sort of detect in this game because what you're basically seeing is is the action and Liverpool playing very proficiently. Crystal Palace not doing very much and there was no sort of dogs running on the pitch or anything, was there? Did you have anything much from this game? No, not really. No. <clears throat> Other than, I mean, literally the only interesting thing really was the post-match interview where... Terry Venables basically just sort of praised Liverpool to the to the nth degree. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So yes, I mean, essentially in the match, Liverpool dominated the first half. John Burridge had to make quite a few important saves. Uh, Jimmy Casey's looping header from a Johnson cross gave Liverpool a one nil lead just before half time. Dalglish dug out a chip to double Liverpool's lead with what was described as an astonishing goal. Now I wanted to check with you on this, Rich. I mean, it was sort of it was good technique and everything, but astonishing because there was something mentioned about this earlier on in the episode as if it was like goal of the season contend oh that was the um the gabriel clark thing as as the opening titles were coming up watch look out for a really exciting moment in the liverpool game and it was what did you think of that goal it was all right i mean yeah. it was it was a good goal i mean it's yeah. it a nice chip I and mean, it it kind of floated in and only yeah. just sort of went in the corner but yeah i wouldn't say it was you know it wasn't a Amazing. thirty yard screamer, was it, or anything? It was no, sort of... exactly. I mean, it was it was good. I mean, I, I'm I've always been sort of a fan of subtle goals where you sort of just roll it past the keeper with a, with much more control than you know wanging it in from thirty yards away. I just yeah. there's something a bit more poetic about them. But I mean, it was yeah, it was good. But I mean, I don't think it was like going... goal of the season or anything. No, going crazy about it. They were on the on the big match. Um, <sighs> crazy. T- Terry McDermott finished off a sweeping move from one end of the pitch to the other. That made it 3-0. And Peter Nicholas had Palace's only shot at goal, which hit the crossbar. So the game finished 3-0 to Liverpool. And as you say, Rich Brian Moore, uh, he described Palace's 3-0 defeat as one that would teach them a lot about themselves. And we then get a brief interview between Gerald Sinstat and the Palace manager, Terry Venables, in which the latter is asked by the former whether he'd changed his high regard for Liverpool. Nothing at all, says Venables, quoting a statistic that Liverpool had lost only 13 times at home in the last 10 years. Uh, full of admiration for the team they, that beat Palace, uh, he graciously admitted that Liverpool work hard to make their own luck, hence why they're such a good uh, good side. Fair enough, Venners. Yeah, why don't you just get married to them? <laughs> Put a ring on it, etc. <laughs> Um, and with that, Brian Moore closes this episode of the Big Match by asking us to make a date next Sunday for the special Christmas Big Match program. You'll not regret it, 
he says with a faint hint of menace in his voice. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, of the uh, of the 12 goals in this programme, he picks out three of them to see again as the credits roll. Tommy Langley's for Chelsea, Peter Withers for Newcastle, uh, just after he failed to tackle a runaway dog, and Dalgleish's cheeky chip for Liverpool. And we get the end credits. And that was it. That's your episode of The Big Match from December 79. Um, any closing thoughts on this? Uh, do you think the big match is sort of a bit on autopilot at this point? Because it's essentially the same format as we'd seen four years <coughs> earlier. Well, yeah. And please stop showing Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just stop well, that. There is that, of course. Yes. I, I reckon if we've, I reckon we'll delve back and find that every match was, every programme was Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> the, the forgotten sort of and meme not, of the time. It's not that we've just chosen two random ones. It's like every week was Chelsea. See, just be, they'd start the week by saying the most exciting match this week was between Liverpool and Manchester United. But anyway, here's Chelsea with a nil-nil <laughs> sort of draw with Derby County or something. Yeah. I mean, I'd be honest. I'll let you in on a bit of sort of secret here. But I mean, essentially what I do is I'm... I'll sort of pick, I'll think, right, okay, we'll watch the big match on this next episode of Football Attic Rewind. And then I'll look for two episodes that I think will be suitable, both in different years. And if it looks like I've got a full episode with all the titles and everything in place, I won't bother watching very much of it. Just the first few seconds, I think, right, okay, that's one of the choices. And then I'll do the same for the other one. And then we put it to the Patreon supporters, wonderful people that they are. And then they can pick which year we go for in the next episode but I don't watch the whole episodes through so I don't know what's coming up and that's why we've ended up with Chelsea again maybe I should start doing that in future just to nah. so we can avoid another Chelsea no nah, because it's great when it comes to Chelsea and I can make the note of bloody Chelsea again <laughs> can we can we choose something from the 80s next time we'll try and do that yeah I think that we'll go back to the match of the day archives for the next one we'll go back to the Beeb and uh, and we'll see what we can get well I'll, I'll do my best what you've got to bear in mind though Rich is that in 86 when you first got into football from that point onwards they started doing live whole live games rather than having sort of you know like a summary program like of all the highlights and stuff so we can if you like we can review live matches but personally I'm not sure I want to sit through an hour and a half of a a live game but um, (laughs) so we might be but we'll try and get back into the 80s I think we're due to dip our toes in the 80s again yeah next time around well that's Pretty much all from this episode of the Football Attic Rewind. Before we go, a quick reminder, we'd love you to support us on Patreon. For just £3 a month, you'll get instant access to the podcast once each episode goes live. No two-week wait for the free version to come along. You get to hear the podcast straight away. And, as we just said, you get to vote on the year that we focus on in the next episode. Make your donation £5 a month and you'll get access to the bonus podcasts we're recording from time to time. We did one not so long ago on the official film of Euro 88, for example. Uh, donate £10 a month and we'll hand wash your car every weekend for the next year and a half. Oh, damn, did I actually write that down? Um, I don't even wash my own car for that much. <laughs> <laughs> your support will help us to pay for research material, which in turn will help us to make the podcast more interesting for you to listen to. But that aside... We'd love you to send us your comments and your feedback. If you feel like dropping us a line, you can uh, via email, admin at thefootballattic.com. Uh, our Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash footballattic. And you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash footballattic. And we look forward to hearing from you. But uh, I think for the time being, that's all. Rich, uh, any, any closing comments you'd like to make? No. Right. <laughs> 
that that was where you say it's been really good fun watching the big match with you, Chris, and talking oh, yeah. about. <laughs> um, let's try that again. Yeah, it's been really fun watching the big match and all the things that happened in it and that we talked about. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'll I'll edit that in so that it seamlessly flows through. Seamlessly. seamlessly. We haven't had much Brucey. This very well done to you. What was we ought to have Brucey watch? Like what was Brucey up to in <laughs> oh, the yes. week we recorded this or whatever? Not Do you know that's a damn fine thing. suggestion? We'll have a the Brucey moment. Brucey watch. Brucey is a Brucey bonus. <laughs> what was a Bruce up to? Oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> I think Brucey has gone to ITV by this point. Yeah, this is a nice big packet of pay. <laughs> Miss play your cards right. <laughs> play your Paxo right. Yes, yeah, pa- higher than the cost of a can of Heineken Paxo. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get nothing for a box of Paxo, not in this game. <laughs> Uh, lovely oh, God. well that's it everyone um, thank you very much indeed all of you for listening thank you Rich for your time it's been great talking to you as ever thanks <laughs> don't get it right that time <laughs> my name's Rich Johnson yeah <laughs> who am and, I again and before we all completely lose our minds it's goodbye to you all from me Chris Oakley goodbye bye see you next time on the pink windmill <laughs> Sometimes I feel that the whole world's going mad. Morgan, Mindy, Brian Hayes, Barry Humphrey, Harris Gray, Ned O'Neill, Chris and Doug. Hello, 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 hello. Billy Corkill, Vince Hill. Oh, what a cracker!